GrowCFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using GrowCFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the GrowCFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby. And with me today is a great friend of GrowCFO, Martin Booth. But Martin isn't a finance guy. Martin has a background in sports journalism. So, Martin, tell us a little bit about yourself. Kevin, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm a copywriter. I write great words that help people get more business. And I do that in all kinds of different contexts. Um, the business, I pivoted to become a copywriter nearly five years ago now. And that time I've written about all kinds of different subjects. Yes, including finance. Um, I've written words for um, family offices and mortgage advisors. But I like to say I've written about everything from construction to coffee and mortgages to mayonnaise. Um, my background is in sport. I was a sports journalist for more decades than I care to share. And long story cut short, this is where I am now writing copy for various people in various industries in the various forms that copy can come in. There must still be a ten temptation to write about sport, though, Martin. <laughs> I'm never going to not want to write about sport. And uh, last year, I was lucky enough to, I, I had one client wanted me to do some work around the Euro Football Championship. Um, another one, <clears throat> I got to do some work on the Olympics. And that, yeah, anything that's got a sporting um, flavour to it is always going to feel like home turf to me. Mm. But at the same time, I'm, I don't want to be just a sports copywriter. I want to be available to help people in whatever context they need their written words to be as effective as they need to be. So moving, moving your writing from, from that sports background, Martin, into writing business pieces, what's the biggest challenge for you been in, in changing into that area of writing? I guess it depends on, on the context. Um, if, if someone comes to me and says, as, as, as these previous financial clients did, they want to write something B2C, then that's no problem because I can, I can take what they tell me and I can put it into language that, that a layman like me, a non-specialist, would be able to understand. If someone came to me and said, I want to do something B2B, then that's different. If you're assuming a certain level of knowledge and expertise in, in, in finance, for instance, then you know there's there's certain things I can pick up quickly to the extent that I can you know distill information and deliver it to a general audience. But at the same time, if it was you know some finance people talking to finance people, that might be more challenging. Mm, yeah, but I guess as finance people, most of the time we're talking to non-finance people. We're communicating financial proposals, financial results options analysis, all sorts of different things. So, Martin, in your view, what do, what do we as sort of finance folk tend to get wrong when we're communicating? I think, I think and this is, this is not something that's just about finance folk, by the way, but I, th I think the, the most important thing in any context is to know your audience and to have an, an understanding of the level of, of jargon and expertise that audience can be expected to have around finance. <clears throat> if, you're, if you're a financial firm and you're talking to other financial people, then you know, all bets are off. It's like when you make your report, your annual report to the city, you can have it as technical as you like because the city can be expected to understand that level. But if you're speaking to people who aren't financial experts, then it's, I, think, I think it's incredibly important to understand that there are people who might be phased 
by the use of certain sorts of jargon. And it's like I say, this is not just about finance. Every profession you go into has got jargon, has got ways that people talk to each other, you know, across a sports desk, um, in a hospital, in any kind of place. There's going to be things they say that are shorthand that other people just would not be able to understand. And I know from my experience of being, I was working at a large corporate organization a few years ago, which was very good at issuing regular. Um, bulletins about financial progress, some of it statutory, some of it just to keep people informed. And it always used to strike me that the, the same version that went to the city, the sort, of, the sort of PLC reports, was what got distributed around the office. And I'd like to think I'm reasonably smart, but you'd be confronted by things like IPO, EPS, EBIT, EBITDA, amortization, depreciation. And I'm thinking, well, hang on, can you explain that to me, please? What does that actually mean? I mean, EBITDA is the, I, I, the first time I saw that. It was just left in the middle of a, a sentence in a financial statement. I thought, I've got no idea what that means. Now, you might say with some justification, well, go and find out. So I did. I went and looked it up. And, and I thought, I don't think I should have to do that. I think that, that you can make something that gets distributed to a mixed audience where some people are not financially adept, financially experienced and expert. Then you can either put a footnote in or put a little sentence in and say, this is what this means. It, it's just a question of you know, everything I do in every context that whenever I write something, it's about the transfer of information. And you want that information to be absorbed and understood and acted on and engaged with as efficiently and smoothly by your audience as it possibly can be. And using financial jargon just as using health service jargon or newspaper jargon is a way of just introducing barriers to that process and it's 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 like i say the first when i first sit down for a discovery call with a new client the first thing i always say is who's this for and i think i've said to you before kevin quite a lot of times people say oh anyone really which is when i go back and i say no let's let's look at it a bit more closely and, and have a really clear understanding of who it is you want to hear these words, read these words, understand them and do something on the back of them. Because that will dictate the sort of language that we will use to get that message across as effectively as possible to the, you know, getting a clear idea of the persona of someone you're talking to and thinking, okay, tell the story to them. So in all contexts, that's important. That's that phrase of, well, it's for anyone really, that always frightens me. Yeah. I always think if you say this is for anyone, but really it's for nobody because it'll never be focused in enough on any particular person's requirements for them to be sold by it. I mean, to to take it to an extreme, literally, you'd say build a persona and say my absolutely ideal, my unicorn client is a person who is this age, they live in this house, they read this newspaper, they do this at weekends. It just builds up a three-dimensional picture you then know the sort of language you can use to get a message across as, as effectively as possible to that person. And then that informs the way you, you do all your communications. And like I say, in the context of financial um, updates or reports, you could be going around a, a large organization with disparate departments. And yes, there's going to be, it's, there's almost like that, that's, oh, anybody really, anyone can read this. But you, if you want everyone to understand it, then you have to sort of pitch it at a level where, okay, yeah, the people who are really financially adept will think, well, okay, that's a bit simplistic, but I know what you're talking about. 
but the people who aren't financially adept will also be able to understand what it is you're saying. Yeah. So instead of writing it to everyone, you're probably writing it to Sally, who's 37. She's married. She's got two small children, drives a mini, shops in Waitrose. Wow. It sounds like someone you know know already. I can't believe you just created that persona off the top of your head. But exactly that. that, That's exactly what you're doing when you're writing. Yeah, that's the person that you want to to be able to understand. And in, in, in the context of what I do as a copywriter, it's the person who's most likely to engage and to buy from you. And I, obviously, the, 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 what you're trying to do with the financial statement is slightly different. It's you want people to understand it. Yeah. And to all feel like they're, they're a part of a team. It's, it, it just makes you feel excluded if you're reading something and think, I don't know what that means. I know I could find out, but I don't instinctively know what that means. So could you please explain it to me in a bit more detail while we're in the process of communicating? Yeah. I think there's, there's something as well with, with financial statements that, finance folk make the mistake of just trying to put the numbers out there and say here they are but they miss out on that bit of the the so what question that says what does this really mean and what do you folk that i'm giving this report to to need to do as a result of it yeah interpreting it and analyzing it to say exactly as you just put it what does this mean On, on a simple level is this good or is this bad and on another simple level, and what do we have to do next? I just, just saying that, as you say, most or many financial statements are just that. Here are a list of numbers. Thanks very much. Off you go. Let's have lunch. Whereas you want to say, this means the business is in this position compared to that position. It means we are in a position to go in that direction rather than this direction. <clears throat> just to put a bit more, a bit more life into it and a bit more color and, and blood and, and meaning into it because it, it says because these financial tests have happened that means this and you're absolutely right to, to, to pick that out kevin is, is that usually it's just a list of numbers whereas what you want is okay those are the numbers but this is the story yeah and it is about telling stories it's all about telling stories i mean i mentioned a minute ago about writing about mortgages and it's it's um, just to say that it's, it's a group of guys who, who are based in me, a fantastic little organization who does mortgages. And they, they came to me and said, we need to write some articles for a magazine. And we don't know what to write about because we don't, how do you write about mortgages? And I said, it's simple. Don't write about mortgages. Write about the people that you help by getting them mortgages. Tell those stories. People don't want to read about, you know, interest rates and, you know, the length of time of the mortgage. It's about the difference you made with that product, telling that story. And the next time I saw one of the guys was at a networking event and he got up to do his 60 seconds. He told this amazing story about a woman who came into their office and she was in tears and she was a single mother with no money and had, in, in, just had a hopeless situation. And this is how we helped her and now she's got her own place. And the whole room responded to it. And I saw him at the end and I said, you see, you know, you tell stories about, about people. And to, to transfer that, <coughs> excuse me, that example into the context we're talking about, you tell the story of, of the company and what, what these figures mean to the company, to the teams, to the people who work in those teams. And again, going back to that example of the place I worked in, in, in corporate world, there was never any of that. Well, this means that next six months we can do this. Because that happened last quarter, in the next quarter, this is going to happen. 
it, it just was that that list of figures you mentioned. Hmm. I think thinking about that, Martin, some, something I've found works if you know, say I'm talking to a client, talking to the board, and we're trying to put a proposal there to say, well, we need to do X, Y, and Z. That something that's really useful is not just to give them the sort of the methodology for doing it, telling them what's going to happen. Talk to them about a situation where it's been done before. Paint a picture of a, another business, the problem they had, then a little bit about what worked, and then quite a bit about, and what was the outcome because we'd done that. And that somehow seems to make it far less dry, brings it alive. Folks start associating the problem in their company with the problem that the other business have just told them the story about having. And there's something about telling it that way that makes it memorable. Yeah. You said it in three words, paint a picture. Mm. And People might say, well, that's an awful lot of work. It's, it's actually, it's not that much work. Just that little bit of extra interpretation, understanding, and a way of delivering a message that illustrates it in a way people say, I can relate to that. So they did this, and that happened. So if we do that, this might happen. And people can then, they've then got a context to place it into, rather than just being a dry set of figures. Well, what does that mean? Well, they were in that position. They had these same numbers, and this happened. I think couldn't couldn't argue that at all. It's a great way of illustrating, a good way of getting that message across. Martin, background in sports journalism. The headline on the back page of the newspaper. That yeah. must be really important in grabbing someone's eye. Does that that headline translate into business in the same way? Um, it can do. It can do, yeah. Um, there must be there must be some some way, and we're, we're talking about financial communications in general. There is always some way you can put it into three or four words. It doesn't have to be a great big splasher in 150 point with a pun in it, but there is something you can say that that's, that sort of brings everything together. I, I think so. Whenever I write something, I'm still looking for the perfect headline on someone's homepage of the website. And the perfect intro, that first paragraph that absolutely nails people's attention and gets them to, well, first thing, read the second paragraph. Yeah. That's what you're doing. You're trying to grab someone's attention and say, read this. And yes, I guess so. I, 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 there, there is, there's got to be a way of, even, even if it's just Q3 is going to be great. Oh, really? Why? Well, here are the figures that prove it because that's what happened in Q2 and Q1. There is, there is some way of selling that story with, with a great big splash headline, for sure. Yeah. Good headline that says, yeah, I'll read the first paragraph. Yeah. Something in the first paragraph that makes you want to go and read the second paragraph and takes you deeper into it. It's, when you're training in journalism, it's the pyramid. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 top, the stuff at the top is the really big, heavy stuff, and everything else is just the detail that supports that. And You always say you, you know you've got the first pile right, if everything just follows on neatly after that. If you're thinking, hang on, I should have put this back in firm, this should be higher up, then go back and rewrite. But if you get the intro right, everything just follows nicely. Hmm. And yes, I, I'm sure that that same 
uh, approach can be applied to, to any kind of communication. It's certainly how I work on when I'm doing someone's website or if I'm doing someone's blog. You want that, first, that headline, that first paragraph to be absolutely on the money. Not a single word wasted, but just gets people wanting to, to read more. Which I suppose moves to the power of the executive summary. Yes. You've got a long report. You're putting a short version at the beginning. I guess that get the, the opening to the executive summary and the facts in there in such a way that people feel, feel compelled to read that even if they don't go into the detail of the report. I've got to be honest, I and mean, I've written some of these things. I've written RFPs, for instance, and my favourite bit was always the executive summary. Yeah. Because that was when I could go back to my old tabloid roots and say, right, let's, we might have pulled together a 160-page document, but let's do it in six paragraphs. Yeah. And as you said, that's the bit. Ultimately, that's, that's the bit that people are going to read because they're thinking, I'm a bit daunted by 160 pages. Can I get it in six parts? Ah, oh, there's an, elect- an executive summary. Mm. And I used to really enjoy the challenge of writing, like I say, distilling everything down. Yeah. And saying, okay, this is where we are. This is what we want. This is what we're offering in those circumstances. And you can get that down as, as crisp and as clear as you like. Yeah. And Okay, 160 pages is a bit big, but say, say you've got maybe a shorter report. Say it's 10 or 15 pages, Martin. Yeah. I personally don't believe that people read 10 to 15 page reports start to finish. No, but if you give them a bullet, a list of bullet points of six, six bullet points right at the front, they'll read that. Yeah. Now you may want them to use that for them to carry on and read the 10 to 15 pages because you, you know, lured them in and said, look, read more inside. Or you may think, look, to heck with it, they're not going to read 15 pages. Let's make sure we get everything in that one slide with six bullet points on it. Yeah. If that's got the, 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 the crux of what it is you're trying to say, and crucially, it's got the, the call to action that says, and what we want you to do now is, then you, then you can do that as short as you like as well. Yeah. And I think the way I, I tend to respond, and I think many people will to reports, is I'll read the summary, and there might be something in the summary that catches my eye or I'm challenged by, like, oh, and we're going to do this by um, a date that's fairly close. Say we're, we're going to do this in the next three months. This is all going to be done by the end of March. Yeah. And I'll be scratching my head and thinking, hmm, that feels like a tall order. I'll then be going into the report proper and perhaps not necessarily looking to read it start to finish, but looking for the bit where, oh, where's the project plan that tells me how they're going to deliver this in three months? Yeah. I want to know more about that. Especially if that's the section that's most relevant to you, to your mm-hmm. team, to your line manager, then it almost acts as an index and it, it sort of cuts out the, as you say, wading through 15 pages. This is the bit you really want. Yeah. It takes you straight to it. And I think there's something that most reports, there's going to be, you know, you're putting it to the board. The production director may have a different view to the sales director, may have a different view to the marketing director may have a different perspective to the HR director, they're all going to dive into different bits of the detail. Yeah. Yeah. And the best way to engage that, that kind of response is to make it as accessible as possible. Say, look, this is what we're doing. We want, we want your thoughts on it. If that call to action is, well, what do you think? Here's how you can get in touch. Here's how you can improve upon this idea. 
then yeah, make it as easy as possible for those people to engage and make it as simple as possible to say what they're engaging with. Mm. We've got a plan. This is the idea. This is the deadline. What do you think? So I guess that says the structure of the bigger doc- document, Martin, is very important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, I, but I, I think most people get that. You can't just, you don't just pile in and do a whole slab of text. You have to break it into sections and, and, like you say, if it's something 10, 15 pages, let alone 160, then you need a good executive summary at the front. Yeah. I, I think the other thing, it's, it's like when you read someone's autobiography, you always read the foreword. You always, you, and the acknowledgements, because there, there, there's some kind of distillation there of what you are about to get stuck into. And it's like a, an amuse-bouche before the main event. Well, if, that's, if you can make that as, as, as relevant and as impactful as possible, because people are reading, you know, they, they come to it fresh, they're at the start. Crash, bang, wallop, here are the things we're going to talk about. Here are the main conclusions. This is effectively, you could, you could get away with reading just this page. And that's, that's, I've got to say, when I see an executive summary, that's what I always think. This is everything that's coming after it, but just in, in bite-sized form. Mm. And I think there's something as well, Martin, that says you could start with the problem Here's the analysis we've done around the problem. Here are the solutions we've thought about. Here's the answer. And take people through a big journey. Or you can take that the other way around and say, we've done some work. Here's the answer. Now here's why it's the answer. Yeah. And I, I, I think the latter appeals to the mind better. Tell them what the solution is first and then demonstrate why. I think so. I think so. There's going to be contexts where either of those approaches could work. And again, it might depend on an audience. Yeah. It depends on whether you think that the people you are disseminating information to want to see a process followed by a result or want to see a result followed by the rationale behind how you got there. Hmm. So when you're writing something, Martin, we come back to the audience again, how much research do you tend to do into the audience as opposed to the subject itself that you're writing about? That's a really good question. Like I say, it is the first question for me. Whenever I sit down for a discovery call, that's the first question. And as I've already said, I won't take the first answer. If someone's a bit vague, <clears throat> and this, this works for, like I say, any business. If you're a plumber, if you're um, an electrician, if you are an interior designer, there's got to be someone that you're looking for. Even if it is, lots of people, if someone says homeowners, well, what sort of homeowners? What's your ideal homeowner? And like I say, that, that, that sets the tone. And in terms of the research, most of the research I do on, on most people's website is done with the person themselves. Now, they might say there are certain concepts, certain products, and you can find out more about that online. <clears throat> in which case, yeah, I'll go off and do research myself. But most of the information will come from the person, from the organisation, because... You've got to trust that they know best. Now, some, sometimes people really are a little bit vague and you say, right, don't worry, I'll go and sort that. I'll go and find that. And then you're sort of filling the gaps for them. But by and large, especially if it's a, a small company that's a family affair, nobody's going to have more of a clue about what they want to say than the person themselves. And during a, uh, a discovery call, people tend to warm up. And by the end, you're getting really good stuff out of them, but I still believe in starting that right from the start. Let's talk first about who we're talking about because it's the most important question of all. 
if yes. this conversation finishes after 30 seconds, at least I know that much. I can go from there. Mm, that is really, really good advice. You know? Don't just dive in and write about the problem and the solution you're coming up with. Take a lot of time thinking about who's going to receive it, how they're going to react to it. What do you want them to do? And what buttons might you have to press in order to get them to do that? I, I struggle to think of a piece of writing that, that you do that wouldn't have a call to action on it. Mm. You, you've got someone to read, you know, your, your executive summary or the whole 15 pages or the whole 160 pages. Well, what do you want them to do next? If it's just to say, click this button to say, I've read this. If it's to say, give me some feedback. If it's to say, this is going to change the way you're working let us know that you understood that and let us know what steps you're going to put in place to make sure that the things we have talked about, the solutions we have visualized in there are going to come true. There's, there's always, I, I say this when I write blogs for people, even your blog should have at the end of it, a call to action that says, enjoy this, want to know more, get in touch. Even if it's something as simple and light as that, it's not necessarily saying click this button, get a full PDF to download about everything with our business. Just something that encourages an ongoing involvement after they've got to the end of, of a, a piece of work. Mm. But it's it's fair to say that certainly in the finance world, I think if you're if you're producing a document, then by definition you should be asking for somebody to do something. Otherwise, why are you producing the document at all? I guess there are certain circumstances where it's a statutory duty. And I, I certainly got that. I've had that impression in the past when I've worked in organisations. Yes. Like, we've got to do this every three months. Here are the figures. Off you go. Mm. And in those circumstances, it's almost like they don't want any engagement. It just as look, we've we've ticked the box. We've we've done the figures. We've sent them around. Leave us alone. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, there will be other circumstances in which it makes it. You know, you're making an announcement that, that affects the future of the company. Well, this is what it means. Here's a session where you can come along and learn more. Here's what's going to happen to your team. Find out something, something more. Just don't just leave this dangling. Mm. And if people do get to the end and they've got questions, or what does this, and it's usually a question is, what does this mean for me? Well, here's how you find out. Here's further resource that you can link to. Here are the people you can speak to who are going to give you those extra details. But especially in a circumstance like that, you wouldn't just leave it dangling, surely. You wouldn't just sort of leave it as a, well, there's the statement. All your jobs are changing. Cheers. Good night. <laughs> There's got to be some kind of a follow-up to it and an understanding that people are going to have questions and, and usually the biggest question is, what's in it for me? What does this mean for me? Yeah. I, I think that nine times out of ten, that normally is on somebody's agenda, particularly if you're proposing some, some kind of change something that's new. People like the status quo. People struggle to move into new territory, whether it's good for them or bad for them. So you really do have to tell folk what's in it for them. I think that's, that, that really is a key one. Yeah, I, I think people might sort of, on, on the face of it, you know, put up a bold front and say, ah, oh, what does this mean for our DNI? What does this mean for our CSR? But ultimately, it's what does it mean for me? It's about people. Yeah. And that's the key thing to remember in all of this. Whatever you're presenting, whatever you're writing, 
it might be about the business, but it's addressed to a group of people or an individual person. It doesn't, doesn't matter if the business is five people or 50,000. A business is still the people that make it up. Exactly. That's, 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 it's basic, but I do think, and, I, and again, none of this is supposed to be a criticism of financial people because I think most people get this you are talking to people, you're not talking to you know, a faceless monolith of an organisation. I just think that some, sometimes just a little bit of a, just sort of stop and think, it's people who are listening to this or reading this, are we making it as easy and as intuitive as possible for them to engage with what we're saying? Mm. That, it's just, just a sort of a simple question to ask and if you can say, yeah, we are, then, then carry on. So we've talked about calls to action. There is a call to action here. If you've enjoyed listening to what Martin and I have been chatting about and you want to find out more about improving your presenting, your writing, your speaking, then in Grow CFO, we've just launched uh, the mo first module of our team training course. The first module is all about communications. And there's lots, lots more in lots more detail than you've heard Martin and I talk to today. So if you, if you want to delve deeper into this whole subject of giving pre presentations, writing reports, and so on, because let's face it, most of us have come from a, a finance background where we've spent all of our days staring at an Excel spreadsheet on a screen and not talking to people. So we're not necessarily the world's best communicators and presenters. Come along and join in to the communications course we've just launched. But Martin, before I let you go, I've got to ask you, what's the most interesting thing you've ever written? Really? Off the yeah. top of my head? Off the top of your head. Oh, my goodness. Um, by the way, great CTA. And, and I know that's jargon, by the way. We talked about it, but call to action, CTA. Um, outstanding. That was really good. This is me trying to buy time to think about. Ah. If I go long, long time back, um, 19, summer of 1998, I wrote a, a two-page spread for the Daily Express on Paul Gascoigne, um, who was at Middlesbrough at the time. Yeah. And it was where Gas. it was just after he'd been overlooked for the England World Cup squad. And it was all about where he was in his career. And I was very, very pleased with that. That's off the top of my head. As soon as we finish this conversation, I'm going to think of about 10 others. Yeah, and um, I, I can think of Paul Gascoigne back then. I remember taking young son along to, we lived on Teesside at the time, although uh, our allegiance is very much black and white stripes where Gaza came from. And there's pre-season friendly going on. And there was a round robin tournament involving both Newcastle and Middlesbrough. I remember watching the Middlesbrough game and Gaza was getting on a bit at that time. And you have to say he was the man of the match. He could ping a ball around the park. He could create all sorts of things. And I don't think he ever got above walking pace the whole game and certainly never broke sweat. I've got to tell you, I was at that game. It was a four-corner tournament that also involved Benfica and Empoli. That's correct. I went, I went to both days. And as you say, Gaza at that stage, I mean, he was, he was in his early 30s by then. Um, and you know, clearly he was suffering with the ravages of everything that had happened to him during his career. But he still had that. You know, that, that, that's, that swagger, that style, that everything about Gaza. That Class above. Would say. Yeah. Um, yes, but that was, a, that was a, a long and interesting weekend. 
Yeah, I remember it well. It feels like it was only yesterday, but uh, that was an eleven-year-old son that was with me, who's now in in his thirties, working in a senior position in Vodafone. <laughs> he'd, be, he'd be about thirty-five by then. That's yeah. how long ago it was. Yeah, uh, but no, it's a, it's a great question. And next next time I, I I have to think about it. So next time I'm asked it, I've got a you know something from less than a quarter of a century ago because. <laughs> The, 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 I'm, I'm fortunate because I love the job I do. I love writing and I love, it's almost problem solving. If someone comes to you and says, I need to get across this message. Uh, we've got to use these keywords. I want it to be, to be in this voice to talk to this particular audience. Um, that's like a little, like a, a jigsaw or a crossword puzzle. And I've got to come up with something that makes them at the end say, wow, that's exactly what I wanted. And it's great when it comes off. And that's more kind of interesting. Martin, that's been fantastic. Thank you for being a guest on this week's Crucial of Our Show. Kevin, thank you. It's been a pleasure as ever. Mm-hmm.